states there was a small latrine in the camp with a sewer leading from it. All the men in the camp knew about the sewer, but no one would go down because we did not know where it came out. Now, that may well be true, but I suspect with one latrine for 5,000 people, it wasn't where the sewer ended up that put people off attempting to escape through it. And welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are looking at Sergeant Harry Dolby of the 2nd Battalion York and Lancaster's Regiment. And now this is an interesting one, because this guy was, I think we could call him a professional soldier, really. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. He'd served for, what, some 18 years, and is listed as a regular soldier. So he's probably done quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I think up until this point. I didn't know very much about 2nd Battalion York and Lancaster, so I had to have a, a little look at this, some of which he details in his report. But effectively, the 2nd Battalion at the start of the war was on guard duty in the Sudan. Okay. And then in the sort of summer of 1940, they moved to Egypt and Palestine before they were then put on loan to the Royal Navy, which I hadn't actually seen a lot of what that was about. And I think it was effectively like a shore guard for ships that were then stationed right, okay. just offshore. Okay. So in that aspect, they're going to be in some sort of an island environment, which is where this leads on to. So this particular capture is set on Crete. And Crete at the start of the war was occupied by the Allies. Mm-hmm. And not an awful lot happened on Crete until April of 1941, which is when Crete was, of course, brought into the war with the German invasion. So a little bit of background, I think, on Crete. The numbers for this are fairly staggering. We had 42,000 personnel on the island, holding the island. The German attacking force, which was mostly German paratroopers and mountain troops supported by the Italians, that numbered 25,000. Okay. So the Germans set in with 25,000 against an Allied contingent of 42,000 with the Royal Navy sitting off the coast. Now, obviously, the thing that we all take home from the invasion of Crete is it was largely an airborne invasion with gliders. Now... The actual Battle of Crete lasted for 13 days. Okay. At the end of the first day, the Allies actually thought that they were going to overcome this invasion attempt because, effectively, the Germans had suffered predominantly all of their losses on the first day. Right. However, as we've seen with, say, Operation Market Garden, where communication became a major factor, mm-hmm. in this one, there was a total communication breakdown on the Allied side, as well as some hesitation on tactically what to do to counterattack what became a very heavy German offensive. So the result was that the airfield at Malim actually fell to the Germans very, very early on in the conflict. That then enabled them to land substantial reinforcements on the island. The result that the Allies retreated south quite swiftly and then actually evacuated 50% of the Allied forces offshore, leaving the rest to either fight with the local resistance or many were captured or surrendered. So ultimately, whilst we had 42,000 personnel, we actually suffered 23,000 casualties, of which 12,000 were prisoners of war. Okay. Whereas the Germans, that had gone in with 25,000 personnel, they lost 6,000 personnel in total, including 1,600 that were wounded. So far less attacking force, Mm. but far less losses, most of which those losses were obviously occurred on the, the first couple of days of the battle. Okay. Linking into Harry, so Harry was on Crete, 
And by the look of it, he was part of a party of 25 individuals who were looking after stores and transport on the island. And at the moment that the air invasion began, uh, some of their party were in a monastery at Suda Bay where they had their stores. And all the rest were dispersed in slit trenches around which had been dug overlooking the Bay of Suda Bay. He mentions that for three days before the start of hostilities, they were bombed almost continuously. And on that afternoon, about 100 enemy gliders came across. The gliders were towed by four-engined aircraft. Each aircraft had four gliders attached to it. And we discovered from crash gliders that each glider contained eight men. Now, that must have been quite a daunting sight Mm -hmm. to see all these massive... German transports towing all of these enemy gliders. So 100 gliders with eight men. Correct, yes. So 800 And you've got 20, 25 guys in a monastery and some slit trenches around it. So they're about numbered then. The, the, in their area, they were a bit y- yeah, yeah, yeah. When the aircraft and gliders got over the landing area, the gliders were unhitched and came down independently. What he does point out was that, obviously, with these gliders landing and there were circling fighter aircraft to protect them, there were very heavy casualties amongst the airborne troops. And he puts here that they calculated that nine out of every ten of them were killed, with probably only about a hundred landing safely. So that's quite a small success rate of getting people safely on the ground. During the night, there were further landings of airborne troops, which were unable to detect in the darkness. After the afternoon of 21st of May, there were also landings by parachute troops who came immediately after the gliders. The parachute and glider troops linked up and on the evening of the 21st, they captured the hospital near Suda Bay. After setting fire to the hospital, parachute troops took out the patients and on the morning of the 22nd forced them to march in front of them up to the positions that we now occupied with the Australians and Greek troops. There were about 250 patients and they were easily recognisable from the hospital blue uniforms most of them were wearing. So, interesting tactic... I, I was going to pick up on this. This is an extremely cowardly act. Completely. Yeah. They're essentially using hospital patients as a human, a human shield. shield. Yeah. yeah. Which I don't think I've come across, well, definitely none in the podcast that we've done. None that we've done, no. But even in General books, reading, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you can see why now, why you wouldn't have much, you wouldn't be able to shoot at the Germans through patients. So no, no, no. Most of your options are going to be to surrender or move away into the resistance in the hills, which breaks it up into very hilly, hilly territory. So... Mm-hmm difficult to fight over anyway. The Germans kept those sick and wounded about 50 yards in front of them and compelled them to walk forward about 250 yards. At that time we were being dive-bombed and could do nothing to attack the Germans. Two Australians however who were on our left flank were able to attack the parachute troops in the rear and recaptured the hospital on the afternoon of the 22nd, holding it for about 12 hours. The Germans then retook it. So overall it's a very very daunting situation that they are in Mm -hmm. and no officer is going to order you to shoot through any of these particular patients. So he goes on to say by the 25th of May our party had lost all touch with our unit and with the Australians. We only had 50 rounds of rifle ammunition and about five grenades each. It was decided it was best for us to split up and 10 of us set off in a truck to try and reach the battalion. After a journey of two days, our truck was held up by Greek officers who told us it was impossible to go further. We stayed with the Greeks for two days and then decided to make for the nearest allied unit, which was the Australians who were having a pretty bad time at the aerodrome. Our party made its way between the Germans and the Australian front lines and reached the Australians on the evening of the 29th of May after a two-day trek. We were allowed to join the Australians and were put in a section and the Australians had plenty of German machine guns and other weapons but food was short. At that time the Australians were still holding the aerodrome with a battalion of Greeks on their right but there was no one on their left as they were near the coast. During the night of the 29th the Australians captured 200 Germans so there was evidently an awful lot of counter mm-hmm. attacks going on in the defence of the airfield. The Greeks however surrendered that night and at 7.30 hours on the 
30th of May, the CEO of the Australians ordered us to destroy all arms and ammunition and gave us the option of continuing to fight individually or remaining and being taken prisoner. Now, bearing in mind the amounts that they've had to endure the last few days Mm -hmm. and they've got very little left, it's probably fairly obvious what they were going to do. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, by virtue of the fact that we know he became a prisoner of war, he did, of course, surrender. So, of course, you said that they'd taken 200 German troops prisoner who had been captured by the Australians and were being held by the Australians, of course. And Dolby states that uh, when the Germans captured us, they released their own men and put us behind the wire. We were kept in the cage for about two hours and then were made to walk back to Suda Bay. This took about four days and we arrived there on the 3rd of June. Conditions on this march were pretty bad as the situation was pretty bleak in general. I mean, he, he does state that around 20 prisoners died from starvation during this march. He states, we were given no food and our party at least had not had a decent meal for about a fortnight. Our food supplies hadn't been destroyed when a bomb hit the monastery at Suda Bay on the 25th of May. Now, he did manage to find some potatoes and other vegetables during the march, but they had to eat them raw because, of course, they weren't given any provisions to cook. Of course, yeah. You're not in a great situation if you're having to rely on raw vegetables. And, of course, we're also in June, so high to the summer in In the Mediterranean, yeah, Yeah. in in Crete. It's it's pretty warm as well, so you're needing to keep your fluids and your food intake, your calorie intake pretty high for this period of time. Now, having arrived back at Suda Bay, he states that we were kept there for three days, carrying bags of rice and flour from the stores to the docks. We got no food except a handful of rice on the morning we arrived. Water was very short as there was only two taps for about 5,000 prisoners. We had to queue up for washing and drinking water. Now, there's two things I want to pick up on this. First of all, they were put to work, very strenuous work. You know, bags of flour and bags of rice are not famously light. Correct. The conditions, as you say, the heat especially would have made that even worse. But also on top of that, two taps for 5,000 prisoners and to queue up for washing and drinking water is a hotbed for disease, cholera, virus, yeah, everything. Exactly. To be absolutely frank, things weren't about to get much better for them. Because after three days at Suda Bay, the prisoners were embarked on three Greek steamers and taken to Salonika, which they reached on the 9th of June after a voyage of three days. The name Salonika is pretty resonant for having pretty harsh conditions within the camp. Right. It was famously bad. It was run by the Germans, not the Italians in this instance. No. And in fact, I'm going to read out quite a substantial section of his escape report because there's so much detail that he provides on just how bad the camp conditions are. Conditions in this camp were very bad. Except for the hospital patients, of whom there were about 100, we all had to sleep in the open. A few had blankets, but most of us had only overcoats to cover us. We were also without boots, our captors having removed the boots we were wearing back on Crete. The hospital patients had no beds and had to lie on the floor. There was no isolation of malaria and dysentery cases. Three British prisoners of war died of malaria and the German medical officer said their deaths were hastened by starvation. There were no medical supplies and I believe the two Australian medical officers escaped after having told some of the Australian troops they could not stand by and see the men die. There was only one German medical officer, although there were 5,000 prisoners of war, 2,000 British and the rest were Greeks in the camp. Now that's just the conditions. Now we mentioned earlier that the conditions at Suda Bay were a hotbed for disease and already we can see with the description of the conditions in Salonika that perfect breeding ground for malaria, cholera and dysentery. Exactly what they experienced in Burma really, wasn't it? Hot, humid conditions, lots of people close together. Lots of illness spreading around very quickly and very, very, very few medical officers and poor sanitary. Next I'm going to cover the food because of course if you've got good quality of food you can just about cope with yeah. sanitary conditions etc. However, the food was very bad. In the morning we got about half a pint of a kind of coffee with no sugar and one Italian biscuit. 
At midday, we got some soup with nothing but bread, but most of us saved the morning biscuit, which was too hard to eat otherwise, and put it in the soup. In the evening, we got about two ounces of boiled rice. The Greek Red Cross and civilians tried to help, but could not do much. Two ounces? Yeah. That's nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. We can already see that the standard of food matches the standard of camp conditions. Yeah. It's the double hit of the appalling conditions in the camp, further undermined by the very poor standard of food. And was this an established camp? I mean, would this have had any sort of Red Cross oversight? or? Well, yes, because he's already mentioned that the Red Cross were actually trying to provide additional oh, of course, yes. uh, food for them. Over and above that, they also had civilians. So he goes on to say the civilians used to bring baskets of food to the camp, but though they were told it would all be given to hospital patients all that went to the German guard room. Now this is where it arguably gets even worse. Water was very scarce. There was only one tap in the whole camp for drinking water and one small wash house for the 5,000 prisoners. There was no proper sanitation. Any soap we had, whether toilet or shaving soap, was taken from us immediately upon our arrival and we were unable to shave or wash our clothes. So as well as poor food and poor conditions within the camp, we also have very poor sanitary conditions as you say. You're going to start getting things like lice and stuff like that that are mm-hmm. going to start to infest themselves on prisoners. And Which is where you get typhus from, isn't it? Yeah. 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 However, there was also a third aspect to the conditions in this camp, which was the brutality of the guards. And Dolby states, The guards were very brutal. Two Australian officers were shot dead because they talked to their men through the wire separating them. One night, two Australians struck a match in a latrine and a guard threw in a grenade which killed them. The guards showed more hatred towards the British than towards the Australians and we were all struck from time to time with rifles and kicked if we did not stand up when a German came along. The guards at the camp were infantry and were more brutal than the parachute troops, whose treatment of us had been quite decent. So all in all, as I say, Salonika has a well-earned reputation for being a pretty appalling camp. And it is a relatively well-established one by virtue of the fact that the Red Cross are involved in this. But it seems to be unheard of that having captured 12,000 prisoners, you know, the Germans must have been aware they were going to take a lot of prisoners if Mm. there was going to be some success in invading Crete. And there must have been a plan for where to put them. And it seems that 5,000 have ended up here in really unsanitary conditions. Appalling conditions, really. Purposely. So we can perfectly well understand why it was Dolby wanted to escape you know we have discussed before what was the inspiration and motivation behind escaping and in some cases you know the classic image of this boarding school holiday camp that seems to have sprung out of the likes of the great escape etc is clearly not the case in this instance you know we are talking about trying to escape from really horrendous conditions yeah motivation is going to be high to get out of there exactly whilst he might not have the energy to get out of there but the sooner he gets out the better. The better chance he has, exactly. And in fact, it was barely six weeks after arriving that he did make his escape. So he arrived on the 9th of June and he made his escape on the 21st of July. It's uh, two months after he was captured. So yes, exactly. he's probably been poorly fed and nourished for several months. Yeah, exactly. So the escape itself is actually quite interesting. So he teamed up with two Cypriots who had been serving in the Royal Army Service Corps. In some ways, the, the escape itself wasn't highly original in the sense that he didn't escape through a sewer right. to get out of the camp yeah what i did find quite interesting and a little bit entertaining actually was he states there was a small latrine in the camp with a sewer leading from it all the men in the camp knew about the sewer but no one would go down because we did not know where it came out now that may well be true but i suspect with one latrine for five thousand people it wasn't where the sewer ended up that put people off attempting to escape through it i imagine it was the thick slurry they would have had to crawl through in some sort of shawshank redemption-esque exactly escape and and for how 
how long they and might for have how long. to. Well, it, he goes on to say that the sewer ran for about 1,500 yards and was two foot in diameter. So I imagine it was... Two feet in diameter, mm-hmm. so that's shoulder width, mm-hmm. for 1,500 yards. Yeah, that's a long way that's, to travel. It's, it's almost the, a mile. In the, in the only sewer from the only latrine in a camp that holds 5,000 prisoners. Oh, my God, that must have taken him ages. Well, I suspect he was in there for quite a while, because he goes on to state, during the afternoon of the 21st of July, there was a check parade. While the parade was on, I chipped off the cement around the iron cover of the sewer. I got down first into the sewer and was followed by the two Cypriots. So I've, I've said that he went down the sewer during the afternoon of the 21st of July. Now, he doesn't say what time it was, no. but it was afternoon time. He goes on to state, we got out of the sewer just as it was getting dark. Wow. Yeah. In the summer. In the summer. Now, I looked this up, and on July the 21st, right. sunset was around about 9pm. So, at the very least, I would say he was down for four plus hours. Yeah. As a conservative estimate. That's for all we know, horrible. afternoon starts at midday, so he could have been down there for as much as nine hours. Oh. So, the sewer itself ran from, as he said, from the latrine, and it ran underneath the parade ground where this check parade was taking place, and came out on the main road about ten yards outside the wire. But in some ways, their timing was perfect, because if, if you're getting out of the sewer just as it's getting dark, you're less likely to be spotted. And in fact, he says that there was a sentry on the road near the wire, but as he was not looking our way, we managed to crawl into a vineyard on the side of the road and they waited there for about three hours so we're now talking about midnight yeah and from there they went to a house nearby about 500 yards away the lady of the house took us into a stable until she could find us clothes she gave us a little food and an old pair of trousers and a shirt each and we buried our uniform trousers and this greek lady was actually very helpful because she was able to communicate with the separates he'd escaped with and given them instructions on how and where to go and they ended up actually going to a small hut in a village about three miles outside of salonica so still nearby but at least out of the near vicinity and in actual fact it was so helpful that they ended up staying there for about three weeks with the Greek host that owned the hut providing them with food periodically. So having got themselves in a relatively good position, they're now outside the camp, they're a couple of miles away, they're being provided with food. They actually came dangerously close to being recaptured a couple really? of weeks later. So this is, we're now into the middle of August. Four men came to the house in civilian clothes. One of them could speak English, the other said they were Greek officers. The one who spoke English said he belonged to the commandos and he produced a British paybook as proof of this. I was doubtful about his statement as I'd seen a good many soldiers in the camp handing over their paybooks to the Germans. The four men said that they'd come to take me away and that a British submarine was coming into Salonika in three days' time. They asked me to leave our hiding place that night and stay with them until the submarine arrived. I went halfway to the town with the men. As we were heading in the direction of the prison camp, I became suspicious. My suspicions were increased by the fact that the men were talking in what I recognised definitely as German. That would give it away. That would be a bit of a giveaway. It would, yeah. About halfway to the town, they asked me to go into a cafe with them and have some wine. I refused, so three of the men went into the cafe and one remained outside with me. I knocked him out and after taking his wallet, I made off. In the wallet, I found 500 writing marks and a number of photographs with German writing on the back. I kept the money and destroyed the wallet and other contents. Close shave. Yes, very close shave, but I also like the fact that he still managed to come out of it with 500 Reich marks. Yeah. However, as we've picked up on other ones, wallet litter would have been quite useful. Quite useful, so yeah. I'm surprised he didn't actually hold on to it. Whilst there's every possibility that he might have been able to speak German, he hasn't made an attempt to so far, so passing himself off a German wallet litter could have been actually quite useful. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. As it was now dark and he travelled halfway back towards Salonika, he wasn't really in a position to make his way back to the 
the original safe house. So instead he went into a vineyard and in a hut in the vineyard he found an old woman who put him in touch with the two Cypriots who had managed to get away and that were also in hiding. So the three of them decided to leave Salonika and make for the Sithonia Peninsula. Now presumably the Cypriots knew their way around Greece better than Dolby did. I would have thought so. And while on the way, the Cypriots brought him up to date and stated that the house had been raided that night and the husband taken away after having his teeth knocked out. The house was raided before they left, but as they spoke Greek and had a forged Greek passport, they were able to leave unmolested. So over the next two days and nights, they made their way to a small port, hoping to get hold of a boat. What, having made their way to the port, they eventually managed to make contact with a fisherman who took them by boat to another place on the north side of the peninsula, where they were able to stay for three days in a monastery. Now this is starting to sound a little bit like Dean Drummond's first escape. Oh, okay. In the monastery. Yes, but then monasteries, I imagine particularly in the Italian campaign, monasteries were probably quite, for want of a better word, fortified, isolated But also buildings. relatively common in bo- both a Catholic country, in Italy's case, and the Greek Orthodox. I would imagine the monastery is relatively common to come across. Absolutely. And if you want to put people in a secure location that's controllable, mm-hmm. one big building designed to house a number of people in an isolated area is probably quite a good bet. Yeah. So having stayed three days in this small monastery, from there a monk took them on foot over the hills to a larger monastery. I love that detail. Mm. Just, uh, you know, we've we've had guides that take them across the mountains, across the hills, across plains, all this sort of stuff. But I love the idea of a monk taking them through the hills to another monastery. And they ended up staying in this larger monastery for a month. So once a week, a German patrol would come and check on the monasteries in the district. Despite staying there for a month, eventually they decided to move to the other side of the peninsula, having heard that they could get a rowing boat there. Now, while staying there, they'd been given a small map, and the plan was to try to get to a Turkish island at the entrance of the Dardanelles, about 10 miles from the mainland of Turkey. The island was called Imbros. They were put up for one night at the monastery, and while there, they were joined by two Australians. They managed to get a boat and some stores and then set off during the first week of September across the Aegean Sea. Uh, The boat that they managed to get hold of was a 16-foot rowing boat. And while they had no sail and no motor, they did have four oars and were accompanied by the Greek owner of the boat. And so was a party of six altogether. So they were able to put four people on the oars and rotate through the six of them so that the oars were continuously going. And that's essentially how they managed to cross the Aegean. But not without some drama. So after about three days of rowing, a storm brewed up on the Aegean Sea and they had to put in at Lemnos. Now Lemnos is a large island about halfway across the Aegean between Greece and Turkey. Quite a trek. It's not bad. Bearing in mind they're still fairly, well they might have got more nourishment in their month's stay at the monastery, but they must be still fairly weak. I would have thought they wouldn't have been in the best of conditions. Yeah. And in fact, he states, when we landed on Lemnos, the owner of the boat set off for one of the villages for stores and he was away for three days, during which time we had nothing to eat or drink. And unfortunately, when the owner returned, he brought with him a German patrol, having been frightened into giving the party away. Now, they were surrounded, but only one of the Australians was actually captured. And I can only assume they had to split up, because he states, for most of the rest of my time I was on Lemnos, and he was there for 21 days altogether, so three weeks, I was on my own, and did not see the two Cypriots again until I reached Turkey. During those three weeks, he he went from village to village to village, and uh, managed to discover that there were about 300 Germans on the island. Now, because of the Germans' presence on the island, the villagers would not offer him shelter, and so he had to sleep out every single night for those three weeks. However, during the day, he was able to get hold of food from farmers working in the hills. So he was able to make something 
of this time. I mean, he's had to do a runner without any food, but yeah. he's able to make the best of it and evade capture for three weeks on a foreign island that he never planned to visit in the first place. Indeed, yeah. So he's making a pretty good fist of this. So towards the end of this three weeks, he'd obviously been chatting to the Greeks, not least to get food, but also to gather information, intelligence, trying to convince them to take him further on to Turkey, because of course Turkey was a neutral country mm-hmm. at this stage and was to remain neutral until 1944 when they read the tea leaves extremely well and joined the Allies. As part of these conversations that they were having, he says, a Greek told me that there were two other escaped British prisoners of war on the island who had arranged to get a boat, so I walked around the coast till I met them. And there's actually a fantastic detail. He says that these two British prisoners of war had got hold of this rowing boat which had been given to them by a Greek policeman. Now this Greek policeman had been put in charge under the Germans of supervising the fishing boats. Okay. Which is a very convenient contact to have if he's then dishing out rowing boats left, right and centre to any British prisoner of war who happens to rock up. I think we can safely say that this Greek policeman was a supporter of the Allies. I think so, yes. So having got hold of this rowing boat, they left Lemnos on the 5th of October and it took them three further days to reach Imnos, rowing the entire time. They had no stores and didn't have any water either, had no compass. However, navigation was not difficult as they were within sight of Imbros the whole time. Now that does make sense because if you think about it, Dover to Cali is 22 miles and you can see the other side the entire time. So 12 miles to a nearby island, actually you don't need any navigational. But must be strong currents to take three days to... I would have thought so, yeah. Also there's only three of them in a weakened condition in a rowing boat who had to row that entire time. Yeah. So I can't imagine they made great progress either. He does also state that a seaplane passed over them on patrol every single day, but they always lay down immediately the second they'd been sighted and so were not observed, effectively playing dead yeah. in a boat in the middle of the Aegean. Now, I personally would have thought that if, if they saw a rowing boat in the middle of the Aegean, they may have got a bit more suspicious. However, they didn't. But one could argue, because I would have thought that at the time, bearing in mind these are fishing communities, mm-hmm. there would have been an element of permitted fishing by locals, say, probably mm-hmm. within in a particular area and if this island's within sight it could quite easily be that that's a permitted area if they were heading out massively out to city it would gain interest but of course and if they're only 12 miles apart you've only got a sort of six mile radius either side from, yeah. from Embros and from Lemnos so you're, the the range of fishing isn't particularly large so w- I imagine it would have been permissible within that area regardless of which island they were from yeah one would have thought one of the reasons they had to go alone was because they had been told by the Greeks that the Turks probably wouldn't welcome them when they arrived. Now we have discussed before the concept that effectively prisoners of war were illegal immigrants because they were arriving without permission without and permission and paperwork, exactly. And so they had been told that the Turks may not make them all that welcome. Only 12 miles away from an occupied country they may have been forced to return. So upon arriving on Embros on the 7th of October they sank the boat and walked over the hills till they met a shepherd who took them to the Turkish police. And what they actually discovered was that the police were quite friendly and although they had no proof that they were British, they were put on a steamer the next day to go to the mainland of Turkey where the police took charge of them again and were able to get hold of the British consul who took them to their house and then to a hotel. Now obviously as we know, the British consul would have been able to communicate back with London, back with the UK, to vouch and verify his identity. We can see that he slowly but surely starts making his way back through Turkey towards the capital Ankara and eventually arrives at Ankara on the 12th of November where a representative 
representative of the embassy was able to meet them and look after them. We now have him with the British embassy in the capital of Ankara on the 12th of November, so we're talking about just shy of four months since he'd escaped from Salonika on the 21st of July. So he's safely ensconced with the British embassy in the neutral country. And from there, he is put on the Taurus Express. It originally ran from Istanbul to Baghdad, and in actual fact, it features in the opening chapter of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. You are a font of all knowledge. Aren't I just? You are. That could be useful in a pub quiz. It could be. And I think it's fair to say that having reached Ankara, they made what can best be described as the long way round to get home. Because from Ankara, they are sent on this Taurus Express to Aleppo. Okay, yeah. And from there, they then take another train to Jaffa. And he was actually to spend quite a bit of time in hospital in Jaffa. Interesting. This uh, this is the first real medical care since his capture. Since his capture. I think we can probably safely assume that even if he wasn't injured upon capture, he certainly wasn't doing too well from the various conditions that he'd had to live through, whether in the camp or after the camp where he was in hiding or even just having to roll continuously across the Aegean Sea in a small fishing boat. From Jaffa, he was sent to another hospital in Jerusalem. And from there, he was then sent on to Cairo, where he spent another month in hospital. So we're now at the 21st of January when he left Cairo and was sent down to Durban in South Africa. This is what I mean by the long way around. This is quite a long way, yeah. And he was to spend another three months in hospital in Durban. From Durban, he then returned back to the UK, landing in Liverpool on the 5th of May. So to summarise, we've got him back in the UK on the 5th of May here. So he's arrived back in the UK nearly 10 months after escaping. But a fair amount of that 10 months, in fact about 6 months of that time, was spent in hospital. But it's a bit unclear why. Well, this is the thing. I mean, he would have been suffering from malnutrition, probably exposure, exhaustion. There's the little note at the end that says, After landing, I had a medical inspection and was sent to Davy Hume Hospital in Manchester where I was regraded C for 6 months. Now, I had to look up army medical grades, mm-hmm. and C comes in as fit for home service only. Okay. Which would explain why, when I came to try and look into his post escape career, I found very little. In fact, I, th- I see that effectively his military service ended in 43. So that all ties in with him being graded C, mm-hmm. unfit for actual service, fit only for home service. Potentially, that was the end of his career in the army, mm-hmm. and that he would spend the rest of the time probably behind a desk. Other than that, there are are a few references in an archive up north that he had some brothers and they all served together but as we've seen with a number of these escapes and especially in lower ranks such as sergeant yeah post his escape other than him getting awarded a military medal for his efforts in escaping mm-hmm. he disappears completely into from the, the midst of time yeah i could find nothing on him so if anyone out there does know anything of what happened to harry dolby yeah please do get in contact and i have to say you know he must have gone through hell and back again in some of the treatment he received and yet still find the strength and purpose to row across a major sea in the Mediterranean. There must have been a great deal of strength of will and physical strength. Yeah. Well, we don't know what condition he was in when he was captured. No. However, yes, it took everything out of it. I mean, we've seen cases before of repatriation of prisoners Mm -hmm. who were unfit for future service that normally had to be highly wounded Mm -hmm. or mentally incapable incapable of of fighting again. again, But it was deemed that medical condition brought about through his capture, internment and subsequent escape actually left him unfit for future frontline service. Which I think is actually saying something given that we have him back in the UK May, June 1943. Now he is returned to the 
Green Howards. He's told to report to the Green Howards on the 22nd of May. So we're talking about barely a year before D-Day when they would have been wanting pretty much anyone who could serve to serve, and yet he's still deemed medically, physically incapable of serving. That's not to denigrate him or his his efforts. It's just a reflection of how badly he must have suffered in enacting this escape. I rode for seven, eight years, and quite frankly, the thought of rowing for six, seven days across the Aegean is my idea of torture. Yeah, an interesting man and an interesting escape. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.